0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit, currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research
1: team. Good morning. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, the twenty second of February, and welcome to the Bloomberg Intelligence Emerging Market Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we have a real, real treat for you all as we're joined by Dr. Fabio Natalucci, Deputy Director of Monetary and Capital Markets at the IMF in Washington, and his colleague, Rohit Goyal, financial sector expert and member of IMF's market surveillance team. An absolute privilege to have you both here with us today, gentlemen. Thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Oh, thank you so much for, for having us. Really a pleasure to be
1: here. Great. Well, Fabio, you know, we're going to have to begin with you. I mean, look, sustainable finance has emerged as a key area of focus for global investors and policy officials worldwide, but we'll get into that with Rohit in just a few minutes. What I have to ask you before we dive headfirst into the ESG space is, you know, perhaps you could just provide our listeners, our audience with a sense of you know, what the International Monetary Fund is currently seeing in emerging markets and what the outlook for f- financial stability may be, and more importantly, how you personally are thinking about it.
0: Yeah, so thanks again for, for having us here. So, and the, the opportunities to just uh, chat with you about these issues. So let me start maybe with thinking about quickly the, the building block, the lenses we use for financial stability, right? So we try to separate risk. From financial vulnerabilities and our overall financial assessment, like the reason we do this because risk is something we can foresee. Right, so two years ago, we're not going to be obviously. Uh, Covid was not on our list of possible shock. So we want to be out of the business. What we can do though, we can look at financial conditions, uh, which is essentially the pricing of risk. We can look at financial vulnerabilities. Financial vulnerabilities are things that essentially amplify a shock. Right, whether these are valuation misalignment, so valuation that are uh, uh, detached from fundamentals, whether those are more structural vulnerabilities, like leverage, liquidity, maturity mismatch, currency mismatch, interconnectness of the financial system. Then we look at the overall financial stability assessment, projecting out the distribution of global uh, GDP, one year, three years, so short term and versus medium term, and then look at what we call the left tail, so the downside risk to growth. Those are, that's the framework, essentially, the lenses we use to, to assess financial stability. Now, where are we today? I think today it's a very interesting juncture. Um, hopefully, we'll be exiting the, the virus. Uh, we are in the middle of starting policy normalization in advanced economies. Emerging markets already started uh, last year, and there's a lot of variation across countries. So, to summarize briefly, where we are, I think financial stability risks are still contained so far. Uh, the recovery is ongoing, strong, uh, and also a extraordinary measures have been put in place. Uh, during COVID, both monetary policy and fiscal policy, but there are vulnerabilities that remain. And so what are these vulnerabilities? I think global debt, it's a historical high, uh, particularly in the, in the sovereign sector. That is true for advanced economies, but also in emerging markets. Like That reflects essentially the fiscal response to, the, to, to COVID. Uh, normalization, it's, it's ongoing. Again, as I said, my emerging markets have started uh, in earnest last year. But you have also discussion among major central banks, like the Fed, uh, the ECB, Bank of Canada, Bank of England, or how to normalize and what would be the impact on financial condition. Of course, tightening financial condition is the intended objective of policy. Ultimately, they want to bring inflation down, right? Very high inflation, stubbornly high. At the same time, they want to avoid a disorderly tightening a financial condition. They might actually put the recovery uh, at risk. So, And then finally... What does it mean for emerging markets like what how is that going to impact emerging markets who are facing high rollover risk and then they are finance uh, they need to finance that uh, externally um so if you want I can go to some of the specific issue for emerging markets maybe now before we go into sustainable yeah, finance
1: yeah no I mean look I think you hit on the three primary points right I mean elevated debt levels you know the normalization the you know, the coming storm as it were of of uh, central bank balance sheet normalization, right? And, and, and again, you know, how is emerging market going to behave in this environment? And it's one, as you rightly know, is marked by uh, elevated election risk. I mean, we've got some major yeah. elections coming through, as well as some of the idiosyncratic risks we're seeing in, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe as it relates to Russia and the Ukraine. So maybe, yeah, if you could just point out a couple of the hotspots worldwide and give us a sense of what's going on.
0: Yeah, so maybe starting one of the risks obviously has to do with domestic possible shocks, right? So we continue to see a very asymmetric recovery uh, uh, between advanced economies and emerging markets, but even within emerging markets. Part of it has to do with vaccination penetration uh, and the impact that is having on economic activity and mobility. Uh, Related to that is inflation. Inflation has been rising sharply last year, well above uh, expectation by by analysts and push emerging markets essentially to start tightening monetary policy well ahead of advanced economies to start. We have seen a tightening of domestic financial condition, but importantly, there has been differentiation, right? So we see differentiation, first of all, in terms of inflation, say between Latam, Eastern Europe versus Asia, relatedly to the responsive monetary policy central banks in Latam and advanced and emerging Asia, they're tightened much more aggressively than what we see in Asia. And also in terms of the impact on domestic financial condition we have seen an increase in yields uh, domestic local currency bonds but also we have seen differentiation in terms of how much these have increased again with asia lagging on the front as well as in terms of differentiation on the part of investor with respect to external funding costs right particularly by by ratings so that's the domestic piece there is then as i mentioned quickly before the risk of a tightening of global financial condition particularly a disorderly tightening right so we want to see some tightening of financial condition you want to slow demand if you want to control and bring inflation back to target. The issue is a disorderly sharp tightening of global financial condition that may actually have an impact on emerging markets and may actually put the recovery at risk, right? Through currency depreciation, possibly also through an increase in real uh, U.S. yields having an impact on term premium in emerging markets. Now, that said, what we have seen so far is that emerging markets have been quite resilient uh, this year. We have seen emerging markets equities that have strongly outperformed the S&P since the beginning of the year. So the S&P was down 8%. Yesterday, aggregate EMs uh, equities are still up about 1%. Uh, We have seen bond yields, local currency bond yields moving higher in a relatively uh, orderly way, Uh, in part, I think, because emerging markets have already started tidying. And so they already benefit from that. And the emerging market asset can offer some sort of carry advantage uh, vis-a-vis advanced economies. Uh, asset, um, has also seen an, an abatement of the virus concern, so some uh, diminishing of concern about growth. Maybe a couple of more things in terms of emerging market-specific issue we are looking at. One is the cryptoization risk, right? the idea that crypto assets are being possibly can be adopted by emerging markets, and what does it mean in terms of monetary policy, intermediation of the banking sector, and so on. That's a, a topic that we have covered uh, with Financial Stability uh, Report in the past. And then just to give a hint of what it's going to be in the next global financial stability report, we are looking at the sovereign bank nexus. So this idea that domestic banks in EMs are holding a larger share of domestic debt, uh, something sort of like similar to what we have seen during the European crisis. And so what are the implications for EMs? What is different between EM and advanced economies? And then uh, finally... Um, the, the issue of the uh, removing of the policy support for domestic emerging markets bank, right? So there's been a lot of fiscal policy, lending policy support, moratoria, lo- loans under moratoria, government guarantees. What's going to happen in terms of the impact on emerging market banks in terms of their profitability? So those are a few issues that we're going to be covering uh, just to give you a flavor in the next financial stability report.
1: Wow, Fabio. Well, Rohit, um, Fabio has given us quite a bit to unpack here. And, you know, look, your work on portfolios at the I- at portfolio flows at the IMF is, is nothing short of spectacular. I mean, it's required reading for anyone listening. And so one thing Fabio just pointed out, which really resonates with me, is how central banks and emerging markets were ahead of the curve, you know. And today, what we're seeing, certainly on the currency side, is that these hawkish policy regimes are being rewarded. I mean, if you look at the real, if you look at, at, at the Czech Krona, you know, I mean, many of these central banks that were early on in the tightening cycle, their currencies are finally, um, well, they're showing better resilience, quite frankly. Um, so, you know, what else are you seeing? I mean, what are you seeing in terms of portfolio flow trends, cross-border trends, um, into and out of emerging markets today?
2: Uh, hi, Damien. Um, thank you
1: for having uh, us for the podcast again. And uh, absolutely right.
2: We follow portfolio flows very actively. Um, and some of the trends which you have highlighted are bang on and exactly what we are also pointing out in the GFSR. But uh, taking a step back, like first talking about the trends this year, as you said, um, EM portfolio flows uh, started the year on a pretty stable basis, especially given the extreme volatility that we saw in the you know global financial markets this year. And as you may recall, Q4 last year was pretty bad for portfolio flows, but they have recovered quite decently uh, in 2022. Um, The last week is a bit of an exception as political volatility seems to have weighed. But more broadly, we can say portfolio flows have done quite well this year. But an important point, and that takes back to, you know, some of the points you also highlighted, is to note the differentiation within asset classes, which can also help us understand the drivers of these capital flows a little bit more properly. This year, local currency flows have been quite stable, while hard currency flows have been under pressure. And this is important because this is a big disconnect from what we saw in the last couple of years when the local currency flows had underperformed the hard currency segment. And the way we look at it, I mean, there are a few reasons why you know, this trend is emerging. One, as you and Fabio both highlighted, you know, after the sharp hiking cycle uh, since last year, a lot of emerging markets, they have developed a turn of carry advantage, right? So that has provided some support to, to the asset class. Our analysis, and we published, you know, last year on this, it also shows that hard currency flows and yields are more sensitive to external factors as compared to local currency. So naturally, if you look at the global financial conditions this year, they have tightened quite significantly. So naturally, the EM hard currency asset class, that has underperformed a little bit. And... Third factor is, again, the virus concerns they have abated more recently, which means some support to the global growth dynamics, which is also bringing a little bit more optimism on the domestic fundamentals and helping local currency flows. And the research I mentioned earlier also shows that local currency flows are more sensitive to these domestic fundamentals. And as you highlighted, um, currency dynamics are one of the key channels through which this sensitivity is reflected. And we can see some of these guys like Brazil, et cetera, really doing very well on the currency front, despite the fact that dollar overall has remained quite strong. This particular factor on the global growth front is potentially also evident if you look at the equity flows, which had come under severe pressure late last year when there were you know, high worries on uh, the Omicron virus. That seems to have gone down and equity flows seems to have Now, from a forward-looking perspective, uh, just one brief point, Um, domestic fundamentals obviously play a very key role for emerging markets, and there is a very big variation um, within EMs. Um, One example, for instance, is if you look at the hard currency flows in the segment, the pressures which we are seeing there are more concentrated in the frontier economies, which have seen a pretty sharp decline in the offshore issuance, but have seen a widening of their spreads. So that also takes us to the point that investors are clearly differentiating on the basis of fundamentals.
1: I mean, and so let me ask you this. I mean, if we are indeed seeing what you're calling for, the fact that local flows are actually showing less sensitivity to global financial conditions, and hence, you know, the, the, the quant tightening cycle, which, you know, uh, the, the wave of tightening that the Fed and the ECB and all the other developed market central banks are coming, You know, is now the time, I mean, do we believe that maybe EM local debt can serve as sort of a safe haven amid uh, the morass we're seeing? I mean, I think Fabia pointed out earlier, if you look at the, the handful of asset classes across both equities and fixed income that are up year to date, they're few and far between with the exception of emerging markets, right? So, you know, just if you could expand on that for me a little bit, I mean, is that something that investors, you know... Can, can sort of look at emerging markets as a, as a relative safe haven if financial conditions are tightening here in the U.S. and other developed markets? Um, specifically on this point, again, um, the issue is that
2: there is a very big variation within emerging markets, right? I mean, uh, some of the commentary you highlighted, we can see uh, when we talk to the market contacts. And, you know, some of them are becoming more uh, positive on the EM local currency segment, you know, which has underperformed massively in the last many years. Um, And, you know, foreign ownership has also declined. So from that perspective, you can also see how much, uh, you know, uh, further risk is uh, pending there. But one thing which we keep highlighting is that, look, uh, this segment obviously remains susceptible uh, to any... uh, Significant tightening of external financial conditions, and, as Fabio highlighted, the big concern for us is if it is a disorderly financial
1: condition yeah it's the speed no, I yeah. completely yeah. take your point yeah. i mean and that that it seems you know there's been a lot of talk of late as you well as you're well pointing out you know can you know the Fed engineer what they call uh, you know a tightening of, of financial conditions without you know bursting the bubble. you know the verdict is out, but you know it's it's going to be quite a challenge. I think we're all in agreement with that so so let's let's tear up the script and shift gears here. We need to talk about sustainable finance in emerging markets. you know I mean, I'll give you the statistic here. Gross flows into emerging market, ESG-related bonds were $190 billion in 2021, that against an average of half of that, something on the order of $60 billion over the last two years prior. So, you know, I wonder if you can't enlighten our audience as to the role sustainable finance plays within emerging markets, how that market is evolving, and, you know, any other sort of goodies that come hand in hand with that, specifically as it relates to EMX China. I mean, we all know China has been a dominant issue in the um, in the ESG space. But what lies ahead for uh, for EMX China on that front?
2: Um, thanks, Damien. So uh, uh, Fabio has done a lot of work on that. Let me spend a few minutes just to uh, talk about EMESG, and then uh, Fabio can talk about policies and stuff more broadly. But yeah, uh, look within the IMF. Also, we have been doing a lot of work on the sustainable finance markets and its you know relevance for the global financial markets. Um, and if you look at it clearly, advanced economies had taken the early lead in this segment. Uh, but sustainable finance tra- strategies have become more mainstream for EMs, and this is you know driven in part by the pandemic-related financing needs. Uh, there are a lot of you know social bonds and sustainability-linked instruments that have come on stream. But there is also a surge in climate-related green borrowing. As you said, you know, 2021 was truly a breakout year for emerging markets, both because the overall market increased massively in size. But more importantly, there was an expansion across multiple categories. So let me unpack uh, that for a minute. First is on the growth of the EM ESG ecosystem. As you, you know, rightly pointed out, uh, cross issuance of EM sustainable debt was almost, you know, $200 billion last year. And that was more than three times the average in the last few years. So clearly, there is a very massive acceleration um, in terms of the equity segment, the sustainability-related equity flows. That segment is a little bit more mature than fixed income, but even those flows increased by almost 25% YOI. So clearly, this segment is becoming more important. Now, another way, and you know, we look at the financial stability risks, right? So for us, one lens to look at it is how much of EM financing is actually tied to these ESG instruments, right? And the data that we put out shows that these instruments now account for almost 18% of the offshore financing mix for EMs, which is almost a four times increase in the last few years. So that clearly shows that, look, this segment is becoming more important for EM financial stability risks, but more broadly for EM fixed income investors now um this is the overall size uh, but as you said you know the segment can be quite concentrated so we also looked at the breadth of this ecosystem and uh, we saw a rapid expansion around that so uh, first on the region as you said right china is has always been a dominant player but even the other emerging markets they have really picked up like issuance by ems excluding china it's almost of the total issuance in the last three years, which was just around one third over, you know, 2016 to 2018. So the point being that other countries are also coming on stream. And just to name a few, for instance, you know, Chile is a clear leader. And it's already issued almost 12 to 13% of GDP over the last five years and followed by Peru and Mexico. So clearly, LATAM countries are taking a lead. But even um, without the regions, uh, it's also important to look at the different kind of instruments which are a part of this ESG ecosystem, green bonds, which remains sort of the core part of the market for EMs as well as for advanced economies. It, you know, that remains the case. But if you look at other instruments like social bonds, sustainability linked instruments, Mm they're also growing in importance. They, you know, account for almost 50% of the total issuance in the last three years. These instruments are quite relevant for countries outside of China. Like for instance, Chile is about social bonds. Uh, primarily. Uh, so that's sort of one of the main findings which we did you know in one of the recent publications and we are doing more work on that the EMESG system is indeed expanding not only in aggregate size but also across a turn of different dimensions.
1: Well, you know, Rohit, I wonder if you could also just expand on that a little bit. I mean, you know, when I think of, you know, ESG and, you know, or green bonds are, you know, mostly sovereign issued. I mean, mostly issued by the financial sector, quite frankly. But, you know, increasingly what I'm seeing and actually hearing is that it's other sectors, you know, the energy sector, you know, the industrial sector, even utilities, you know, where you're getting a lot of, you know, sort of new issuance in in sustainable finance. I wonder, could you perhaps expand on that? I mean, is that actually happening? Are we seeing real evidence of that? And, and how does that look and feel? And what is, where, where does that fit within the ecosystem? No, that's absolutely
2: bang on. And this is one of the points which you've also tried to bring out that when you start looking at this ecosystem from these lenses, right? So issuance by uh, the type of economic sectors, uh, issuance by the type of ownership, you do see a pretty good, expansion around those. As you said, you know, financials was the dominant sector the last few years. But if you look at China, if you look at EMs excluding China, the proportion of issuance from the financial sector has been declining over the last few years. And that's because sectors like utilities, energy, etc., they are coming on stream. And that sort of is a good sign from our perspective, because it means that, you know, the other corporates who are more potentially related and directly uh, involved in some of these ESG activities, they are coming on stream and they're participating in developing the sustainable finance ecosystem um, in emerging markets. And you'll see a similar trend if you do the decomposition by, as you said, corporates versus sovereigns. Uh, There is quite a big variation across EMS, but there is a good uh,
1: expansion. The system is becoming a little bit less concentrated from that perspective. Fantastic. Fabulous, mate. So, Fabio, let's let's switch back to you. I mean, look, you have obviously been working on the issue of ESG for some time within the IMF. And, you you know, for our audience, I wonder if you could just share with us, you know, what are the main policy priorities going forward, you know, and from some of your more recent findings in the GFSR and the developments that we're seeing in the space, you know, what do you see for the balance of 2022 and, 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 and looking at further ahead? I mean, do we see, um, you know, a a wider range of, you know, of, of instruments with which to get access to ESG? I mean, um, you know, such as the sustainable linked bonds that, you know, Rohit's talking about, I mean, is that going to continue? Is it going to expand into other countries? Is it going to offer, you know, investable opportunities, you know, that, that, have real term premium built into them. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts and your thoughts on that of the IMF.
0: Yeah, so we have done uh, quite a bit of work on the in the Global Financial Stability Report. Like you just two example one, we look at physical climate physical risk and how much of that has been is being priced in global equity markets. Um, and I think the quick answer to that is not much yet. <laughs> um, we have done work on looking at uh, the role the climate uh, objective place in the the investment fund industry uh, in October and looking, drilling down on our GCSG markets or sustainable finance and climate. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of that. Um, And part of it is because there's more need for information. So I think we, in terms of policy recommendation, um, what what we have suggested that policymakers should do is strengthen what we have called the global climate information architecture. And what we mean by that is like a three-leg architecture, right? It starts with the data. Uh, You need to have high-quality, reliable, comparable uh, climate and ESG data. That is crucial if you want to price climate risk, as we are saying, that's not much pricing yet. Um, If you want to prevent greenwashing, which is a big problem, particularly in emerging markets where the data issues are larger, Um, if you want to use climate data to in terms of risk management at financial institution and also stress testing on the part of of central bank and finally to foster sustainable finance markets so you got to start with data good quality reliable and also comparable across jurisdiction the second leg is sustainable finance classification they may align investment with climate goals or dsg goals right there is a proliferation of classification out there some of them are taxonomy in the strict term some of them are more principle based some in the public sector, some in the private sector. So we need some convergence in terms of this uh, sustainable finance classification. And then the third leg has to do with disclosure. We need a harmonized, consistent set of climate-related sustainability disclosure standards so that corporate can disclose using the same standard across the globe and so that the financial institution investor can use that information. Now, we have seen some progress. I mean, the fund obviously... In some cases, I represent the IMF in some of these places. We're participating in different fora from the Financial Stability Board to the Network for Gooding the Financial System in Europe, where I co-chair uh, works on climate data, on the uh, IPSF, the IFRS Foundation, or newly established International Sustainability Standard boards. We provide advice to that. So there's a lot of work ongoing, good progress in terms of data, uh, good progress in terms of standards, uh, eventually, it, at least in some countries, going to our mandatory disclosure standard. I think on the classification, there's more need for convergence. And so if you want to think about where I think the, this um, progress needs to be done, especially as it relates to emerging markets and they transition to a green economy, I would start with data. You need quality data. You need information system that allow, allow data collection. You also need verification and audit of this data. Second, I think transition issues are big. Transition finance, it's a big topic for emerging markets, right? So it doesn't have to be static, like either you're green or you're brown. There's a lot of greenish and brownish, particularly in emerging markets, but also incentivizing investor or financial institution to move from brown toward green in terms of assets. So how to think about the transition finance issues, classification, data collection, incentives, Another point is we need to mobilize private finance, right? If you look at the scale, and there's a lot of numbers out there, how much investment is needed to transition uh, to a greener economy. Clearly, the public sector by itself, especially coming out of COVID with such high level of debt, they can't do the job. The public sector can't do the job by itself. So we need to involve and mobilize private finance there. So how do we attract private finance into uh, emerging markets? We need to deal with this proliferation of classification. As I mentioned, there's a lot of them with with differences between advanced economies and emerging markets, much more focused on transition emerging markets, but also within emerging markets. Uh, And then finally, we need some sort of global standard. We want to avoid fragmentation, not only of the regulatory frameworks that different countries may be using, but also fragmentation of markets. Those are global capital markets. If you want to mobilize private finance, you need to provide global standards. You need to push against fragmentation. And to that extent, international cooperation is an important it's an important way to go. We want to avoid fragmentation, both in terms of policy response. Think about the energy crisis in, in Europe now, right? So some of the policy of what you see development in commodity market can be related to, for example, climate action taken in one specific country. What China does end up having impact in terms of like natural gas prices, in terms of other commodity prices, and what other jurisdiction, what Europe does, it's going to have impact on global commodity prices as well. So we can't think of this as a national level. What is the climate policy or sustainable finance policy? Because there are global repercussions on commodities markets. And then you need to that, you need global standard, you need international cooperation.
1: Gentlemen, I mean, thank you so very much for taking the time to join us here today. I mean, protecting the efficacy of the ESG asset class is something near and dear to my heart, Fabio. So thank you for sharing all the things that you and the IMF are doing to take us there. And so... Gentlemen, with that, I must thank you both. And thank you to our audience of ever enduring, always committed EM enthusiasts for your time and your continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving.